Welcome to today's episode of Tapcast. I'm your host, Chloe Marzinian, and today we're uh, changing things up a little bit. We have a slightly different format. Um, instead of doing an interview, we are answering some questions that we've gotten from TAs, um, and I'm here with two other members of the TA Project team. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Jana, you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I am Jana Dominic. Um, I am a program coordinator of the TA Project with Chloe. And um, I'm in the psychology department here at Rutgers. I'm a fourth year PhD student. And that has afforded me lots of different opportunities to teach a variety of different courses, um, from small recitations to larger lecture courses. And I'm excited to chat. I am Zoe Kitchell. I'm a second year PhD student in the ecology and evolution department. And I am also a project coordinator with the TA project. Sweet. All right, let's go ahead and dive into the questions. Uh, so the first question we're going to talk about, um, every day the same student comes to class over 30 minutes late. Is there anything I can do? Attendance is tough. Oh, so tough. That's so distracting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I had something similar to this happen to me. I was teaching a course over the summer, and there was one student who just – like showed up like 20 or 30 minutes late every day. And I just, you know, when somebody walks in the door late and everyone just turns to the door and looks at them and is distracted mm-hmm. and it's hard to wrangle everybody back together. Um, so I feel like for me, this is just kind of an issue of respect. So on the first day of class, I tell all of my students, here's what, here's what this is going to be like. I promise to be here for you every day of class, to show up on time, to the best of my ability, to be here and be on and be committed for the full class period. And because of that, I expect the same respect from you. Um, And so sometimes this goes over well, and then sometimes you'll still have students who are late for one reason or another. And of course, you know, sometimes they're late because the bus was late or because something happened. But when it comes to be, this is an everyday thing, I might pull that student aside after class and talk to them about what's been, what's going on and, and mention that it's distracting. Um, now, this doesn't this doesn't really get to the attendance policy issue, right? So do I have an attendance policy that's going to actually penalize their grade for this? Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you, the point that you brought up, I feel like there can be two stages. One, I feel like it's great to have something on paper as a bit of a contract for you to reference when you are expressing to them one-on-one that this is a problem and why it's a problem. Uh, because that would give you a little bit more confidence going into that conversation if you already had some type of policy established in your syllabus, for example. Uh, But I think the point that you brought up is extra important, which is the fact that it might warrant a one-on-one conversation. And it's not a guarantee that that conversation is going to be the end-all be-all, but it can give you a little bit more of an idea of, is this a situation where they're juggling 10 different hats and it's they want to be there, but they have too many things going on? Or is this more of a situation where they just don't care and don't really want to be there? And I feel like you might deal with each of those issues in a slightly different way. Yeah, absolutely. I guess we did mention the idea of, you know, do you have an attendance policy? Do you have something that, you know, uh, maybe penalizes their grade if they're not there? I think we should talk about what 
forms attendance policies can take because there's so many different things that can look like. Um, so, I mean, one thing, especially, for example, if you've taught in the summer, a lot of times those classes are two, two and a half, three hours long. And if you take attendance at the end, this 30 minutes late can still be an issue. If you take attendance at the beginning, people leave early. Do you do both? What do you? Yeah. And then you have to, if you have a big class, you have to wrangle everyone and like, I don't know, pass an assign around or like, how do, you, how do you track that? Yeah, it's so hard to decide how to handle that. Um, I, I tend to hope that my students will come to class because they're getting something out of it, right? But that doesn't always work. Um, over the summer, I had, a, I had an attendance policy that was really sort of uh, couched as a participation grade, right? So every single day, at some point during the class, there would be some activity that uh, the students would get credit for if they were there. Now, uh, if one student starts to learn, hmm, it seems like usually this happens about an hour in, right? So I can show up 30 minutes late and still get the points. So I think a little bit of surprise, I guess, in terms of when that activity may happen. Sometimes it happens first thing and first thing. Sometimes it happens at the end of class. Um, also helps break up your teaching method as well. So it has added benefits for that, but can sort of help keep them accountable to be there for the whole class. Yeah, I agree. I think one idea that I've had um, that I'm hoping to do this summer, um, they'll have a quiz at the beginning of class. It's a flipped class, so they're like doing readings and stuff ahead of time. So this has the added bonus of like helping to make sure they actually do the readings. So they'll have the quiz at the beginning, but then there's this issue of them leaving early. So I'm going to have them do like an exit ticket. So it'll be like write down one thing you understood from today and two questions that you have or two things you didn't understand. So like, I'm still getting information, but it doesn't really take any extra class time. I know some people who will do a quiz at the beginning and a second quiz at the end, which can also help keep them, but that takes a lot of class time. But then with this like question thing, I get the immediate feedback of like what questions they had that maybe they weren't willing to ask in front of their classmates. And if I force them to come up with something that they understood, that can be helpful for them if they feel like they've been lost they can come up with they can come up with something uh and then also to phrase their questions and i can you know have a venue for getting those questions even if they don't uh feel comfortable saying them in front of everyone yeah i i love things like that that can serve multiple purposes right because i do care that's such a good point like you do want to know how are your students doing can they ask questions that they don't feel comfortable bringing up being able to disguise that and that you're also getting an attendance grade out of that is a great strategy. Yeah, I hope it works. <laughs> we'll see. Um, maybe we can move on to the next question. Okay. Sounds good. Um, do one of you guys want to read the question? Yeah, for sure. So the second question we got uh, is, what is something that you wish that you knew before you started teaching? <sighs> This is Pandora's box, Yeah, I think. <laughs> it's a good one. I think one thing that I wish I knew was, well, two things. One, that it's okay that you don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And I think the second thing is that being a teacher does not just mean that you're going to go to the classroom every day and you're going to share information with them. You are inevitably going to be approached by your students 24 hours of the day. Mm-hmm. And so I think being ready to know that, you know, the time that you're going to be spending grading and doing office hours 
And of course, teaching is going to be inevitably a lot more time than you expect. Uh, And I think that can be really wonderful because you do get this opportunity to build really amazing relationships with your students, but it can also be a little overwhelming if you're not ready for it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Totally. Yeah, one thing that I wish I would have thought about more before I started teaching is related to this time management of like grading can take forever. And sometimes it's really worth it. It's really valuable. But sometimes it really feels like it's not like they're not getting the feedback and it's not helping them learn things. And like there's something going on that's just like it's taking me forever. It takes them forever to do the assignments and no one's getting value Mm -hmm. out of it. So as much as I can, I mean, we all live with certain constraints of like we have various, you know, the department says it's how we teach. And then so you have to work within those constraints or your you know professor that you're teaching for. But as much as I can, I try to like not necessarily lessen the grading, but making sure that the grading is the most effective, that the assignments are structured in a way so that the student's time spent on is most effective and the time that I'm spent on grading is most effective. Um, to help with that time management for sure yeah you guys both mentioned time management as like things that just surprise you about the way that you don't feel like you have the control over your time the way that you thought you did in terms of like a student could come to you and have a question that you were not planning on talking about for that period of time and that's just yeah yeah Um, one thing that I thought of it was sort of like I don't know maybe just something that surprised me about teaching is that how much it can feel often like a performance or um, I, I don't know, maybe like a, like a form of a social interaction that I've never had before. So like every conversation that you have with someone, you know, maybe there's some give and take, you're nodding at each other, you're agreeing or you're having a discussion. And I remember the first couple of days that I was teaching a class and standing up in front of a group of students that, you know, I had my lesson plan and I'm going through it and how much it felt like I'm, I'm alone here. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, they're there and they're engaged and they're listening and they're like, you know, maybe one student in the front row is smiling and occasionally <laughs> gives you a nod, but yeah. you're really in charge of that pace and you're really in charge of that social interaction in a way that feels like, it, 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 it can feel sort of like you're alone at times. So what I, what I then sort of adopted from that is that I try to teach, to, to, to make my classroom a community and tell them how that feels and say imagine me up here looking at all of these blank faces and I don't know if we should move on to the next topic or I don't know if we should continue to have this conversation because you guys aren't really giving me anything so I think that first of all knowing that even if they're not you know constantly talking back at you and constantly smiling and laughing at your jokes that they're still with you that they're still engaged. They are just sort of engaged in somewhat of a passive way, depending on what you're doing at the time. Um, Knowing that that's okay and that you can sort of try to dictate that environment um, in a way that makes it more conversational. But I think it's it's hard to make to to validate yourself. Like I'm still doing a good job. I'm still engaging them. They're still learning. But this social interaction (laughs) is just new, I guess. I totally agree with you. Like I, an undergrad, I was a tutor. And so like that was the form of teaching Mm -hmm. that I 
really got to know and it was in a very dynamic environment so students were at tables and the tutors would walk around and help students and and it was like encouraged that we like have a couple students who are like oh you two are working on the same problem why don't you two like talk to each other about this or oh I taught you how to do this problem earlier can mm-hmm. you teach them and it was very dynamic and engaging and I knew immediately what they were having difficulty with and then I get in front of a classroom of students and and just like you said I feel alone and I'm like I don't, I don't know. Did you, did you understand that? Are you just nodding because you want me to move on? Are you even listening anymore? Have you totally zoned out? I don't know. Um, totally. So it's, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. And it's like, it's like from the moment that you decide you're going to start class. So before I start class and I'm up there and I'm getting my slides together and I'm like, you take this deep breath and you know the moment that you start talking everyone's eyes will be on you. I mean, ideally, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and until like, and then it's like, you, they're looking to you to say, what are we doing next? When are we moving on? What is the activity? And so you don't really get a break from that. So just sort of being okay with that feeling, I just, had something that I never experienced before. I, I never got comfortable with that feeling to the point where I like very much structure my classes around not having to go through that. Yeah. So, like my classes are Good strategy. super active. Like I love flipped classrooms for this reason because they need to get the information somehow, but I don't like talking at them at the front of the board, even if we have some back and forth of like, okay, any ideas for what we do next? Like, it's still a very unidirectional conversation. And so as much as I can, I'm like, how can I structure my course to not have to do that? Yes. I think it's made me a lot more sympathetic for all the lecturers that I've mm-hmm. had in my life who honestly weren't that good. Yeah. <laughs> because there is very little feedback. Yeah. And again, you're lucky if your students are looking at you with a deadpan face because at least they're looking at you and not their phones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think one thing that I have tried to do more frequently, which has really helped me, is like having those check-in points like Chloe was talking about earlier where like at the end of the class, give them a chance to give you a little bit of feedback to know, okay, I've been lecturing for an hour. Did you get anything out of this past hour? Uh, And then even like finding ways, again, whether it's through active learning or doing some type of check-in periodically, like every 15 minutes or so to just whether that be like throw a question on the board for them to think about or get their mind to flip back into, yes, you're listening, but also hopefully you're processing that information at the same time. But yeah, looking out at the lecture hall and seeing all these faces that are just deadpan. And I think I also have a deadpan face when I'm listening. So I don't fault them, but finding a way to make sure they're getting something out of what you're saying. Yeah, I try to like be the nodder and the smiler when I like go to talks and when I'm like in class, I'm like, someone needs to be the nodder. I I know what that feeling is like on the other side. I'll be that person for you. Yeah, but you know how much that one person, like in your class, when you have that one student in the front row and you're like, okay, I'm going to make a small joke. Let's see how this goes. And they give it to you. They nod and you're like, yes, I need you. (laughs) I will be that person for other people. Yep, absolutely. Exactly. Jana, you want to read the next question? Yeah. Okay, so our next question that came in is, let's see. Have you ever been unprepared for class, and how did you handle it? That's a tough one. Um, so maybe we should first start off by saying, as much as you can, you should be prepared for class. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Yes. Right? Just to cover, cover our bases. 
but inevitably. Yeah. Things happen unexpectedly and you have to deal with it. Yeah, there's totally times where you can be more prepared or less prepared for class. Yeah. So I think um, let's if I have slides or something that I'm presenting – um, usually when I present, like being prepared for me is not just having slides, but it's also knowing what is on them, what is coming next, how to supplement the material with an activity or with a discussion, um, to feel like if students have questions, I'll be able to answer them. So that's doing the extra work, right, to be prepared. But I, I feel like if there's a day where I show up and I, a slide, I know I'm unprepared when my next slide surprises me. Mm. Yeah. And I can't hide that, you know, like I see it or an animation surprises me and I'm like, oh, also we're going to talk about this now. Um, so I, I find that I notice myself talking through those slides more quickly because I don't feel as comfortable explaining the material. Um, and then and then it's like I'm obviously not explaining the material as clearly and then everyone loses. So I think that um, – if I feel that I'm unprepared to the point where the content that I'm trying to deliver is getting muddy, so I, I think knowing when to, to pause and, and say, hey, we're going to come back to this topic or, hey, I need, like, let's take a five-minute break depending on how long this class is or transition to an activity that I was planning to do later in the day that I'll flip around. So I think both being prepared, but also knowing when to acknowledge that this isn't as beneficial as it could be. So let's switch to something that will be more beneficial for the course. Having things in your back pocket, having activities in your back pocket um, that you can pull out and say, here's something that I know has worked in the past, or I know students will get a lot of a lot out of in this moment. And acknowledging when is the, the appropriate point to do that, I think. Yeah, I agree. I rely a lot on activities and I mean I don't know how transferable this is to other fields but I like to be like here's a problem that you might see on homework or a quiz or something why don't you go try it for a couple minutes while I like recompose myself and um you know that has the benefit of me being able to like sit back for a second and like figure out what I'm thinking but also it helps me get that feedback from the students of like oh this is the thing that you are having difficulty with and I can focus my attention there um and then the dynamicness I mean th- there is something to be said for being a little bit unprepared and being able to be on your toes if you're like oh I don't know what they're gonna have difficulty with today I know this is kind of the thing we need to talk about I don't I don't know what are the things we need to focus on that kind of unprepared can be kind of good you know they, you can shift your focus but then you can know how to shift your focus and and getting that feedback from the student can be really helpful for that I think you make a really good point both of you about flexibility in the classroom and realizing that even if you have like the most well articulated lesson plan sometimes it's not going to go the way that you want it to go and that is something that like drives me absolutely crazy is when I have these 10 points that I want to be sure to cover in class and let's say I'm leading a discussion section and by the end of the hour we haven't gotten to all the 10 points, but we've had like really, really good, fruitful discussions. And to this day, it drives me crazy when we don't cover all 10 points. But I think over time, I have gotten a little bit, okay, you know, we covered a lot of good topics and they got something out of it and I got something out of it. And 
it's okay if it didn't look exactly like what I thought it was going to look like. So I think you bring up a good point that, you know, be prepared, but also be prepared that you're not always going to be prepared for everything that's going to happen. Yeah, I totally agree. And you bring up a really interesting point that's worth talking about that how do you cover everything and what happens if you don't? Um, So one thing that I've really relied on a lot is students use the internet. They Google things. They're going to look up the material for your class. So I try as much as I can, especially if there's like a piece that we didn't really get to in class, I'll give them resources. I'll say, here are a couple websites that go through or a couple of, you know, open available textbooks or whatever. And here's some pieces where you can go read about this or watch this video or whatever. Um, Learning doesn't have to only happen in the classroom. So you can sort of help de-stress a little bit about like oh my gosh I have to cover all these things in this brief period of time and then you can like no 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 these you know three or four they're perfectly capable of doing on their own given the right resources I'll let them do that and focus on the hard ones and have those good discussions and and you can be a little more forgiving with yourself that way totally I feel like even on that note it brings up almost a broader point about like how do you like when planning your syllabus to mm. to acknowledge that sometimes these days will happen where things don't go as planned or things take longer than you expected or there's even a snow day right and so your schedule gets messed up so I always plan at least a day or two into my syllabus where it's like bonus topics at the end of the course that we can cover if we do have time but if we don't have time and that's sort of bleed over days for for um, days in my course that take longer than expected. So at least it still feels like even if things don't go expected in the moment, you still have control over the pace of the course and over where your goals are to make sure that at the end of the course, you've still met the goals that you set out at the beginning. Yeah, I totally agree. Do we want to move on to the next question? Let's do it. Okay. Um, Okay, next question we have. Up until this point, I've always been in a classroom as a student. Now I've been asked to teach a class, and I don't feel confident that I know everything about the topic. How do you handle the transition from learner to teacher and feeling confident to teach? Confidence is is a big uh, hurdle in teaching. Um, So maybe we can start by saying, like, you don't have to know everything, and it's okay (laughs) if a question comes up that you don't know the answer to. You can acknowledge that. Your students aren't expecting you to be perfect. Um, I think one thing that might be worth noting is is it's okay to say, I don't know, and then go find out the answer and come back to them. Um, I think it'd be better to do that than to try to sort of try to make up an answer based on some sense of information that you have and then just sort of roll with it uh, because you could be giving them false information and they'll kind of know that you aren't really sure um but this is something good this model is good behavior for students too right because they can then realize that they don't have to know everything they're they're learning they don't have to have all the answers all the time um and and learning is a process yeah totally i i love that point that like this is modeling how your students can learn right so one of the things i mean i would this is such a good question right because when you're asked to teach your first class, it's terrifying. How do I, I don't know everything about this topic, but how can you possibly know everything about a topic? You won't. And so I think for me, I really have to acknowledge that even though I'm asked to teach this class, 
it doesn't mean that I don't need to prepare a lot to do it, right? So I still might need to read the textbook a lot of times. I still need to get slides from various different teaching resources. I need to go to peers who have taught this course before. It's acknowledging that like just because I'm teaching this class doesn't mean I have to be an expert on it from the beginning. In fact, I shouldn't be because every time you're asked to teach a class, you should refresh yourself with where is the field at at this time? What are the newest developments in this course? What are the latest teaching methods for things that have been successful that other other instructors have used? So I think knowing that one, this is going to take a lot of time, but two, that's time that's important and should be considered when you're planning your class. Um, and knowing that even with all of that preparation, there's obviously going to be things that come up that you're not prepared to do. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad teacher. That doesn't mean that you don't know the material. That just means that you're learning as your students are learning. And I think that's okay. I always acknowledge to my students on the first day of class, this is a learning community. You know, I'm not up here teaching you everything. You know, we all bring unique contributions to this learning environment. You might have some personal, I mean, I teach psychology, so a lot of times students come with personal experiences that we talk about, and that's part of our learning environment. But acknowledging that, you know, I'm I'm sharing knowledge and, I, and I'm gonna sort of direct this course, but we all are bringing contributions to this, and that's okay. And that also allows them to know, hey, it's okay when I don't, you know, know something up here at, at the front of the class. So I think that that, is also valuable in giving me that extra boost of confidence that I don't need to know everything from day one. I think also I would like to give a specific call out to people uh, who are currently teaching the class for the first time because it will get better. Like it (laughs) will always be better the next time you teach it. Um, And it'll also, I mean, it's always going to be a lot of time, but it will definitely be less time the second and third and fourth time you teach it. But I think it's equally important, as Jana was saying, to remember that the lectures that I really did not enjoy in undergrad were the lectures that had not changed since 1965. So it's also really exciting that you're teaching a class for the first time because you are bringing a lot of new energy and new perspectives. And likely you are more familiar with the relevant literature than perhaps someone who's been teaching it for 45 years. And also more excited that you're teaching probably than someone who's been teaching for that long. Um, I think another thing that I've thought a lot about is that in many ways as teachers in this point in our career and typically teaching undergrads, A big thing that we're teaching is how to learn and what resources are available. And so, as you guys were saying earlier, it's definitely okay if we don't know it. And in some ways, it's more important that we say, oh, you know, that's a really good question. Let's look into that together. Let's see what type of resources we can find to answer that question. So I think whenever you don't know the answer, you can almost flip it and say, what a great learning experience for both of us. Um, On the note of uh, refreshing the your knowledge of the teaching strategies and refreshing your notes every time. Um, I was at uh, a conference a couple months ago and sort of like the big yearly math conference. And so like about half of it is math research, but the other half is like teaching and pedagogy. And one of the plenary talks was titled something like teaching calculus for the first time 45 times. (laughs) <laughs> so this the person that gave the talk has been teaching for years and years and super well respected in the field but his whole thing was like you should always come at it with fresh eyes and you should 
find ways to experience it with fresh eyes and and be that first-time teacher because yeah it's nerve-wracking and you're gonna make mistakes but you learn so much from that experience and there's value in that um so all the nervousness you're feeling right now like that's that's good that actually provides for a learning experience um it's hard to think that right now because you're nervous and all that but yeah it's really overwhelming the first time I mean it's always overwhelming but it's almost I think sometimes it feels like too overwhelming the first time but definitely gets easier and I always remind myself and remind my peers that even if you're feeling overwhelmed or you're feeling like you don't know enough that you are qualified to be doing this, right? You were asked to teach this class for a reason. You were asked to teach this class because you're qualified to do it. And even at times it doesn't feel like that, you know, it's all, you're, you can do it. And so just reminding yourself about all the training that you have, all the experience that you have, all of the courses that you've taken and, um, you know, that that confidence is coming from somewhere that's not in your area of ex- it, it is that you have expertise in this topic. You just need to feel a little bit of a boost that you can do it. I want to point out, you said, uh, or you've taken all these classes. And one of the parts of the question was, how do you transition from student to, to instructor? Um, all that experience that you've had as a student, you can bring into the classroom, right? You've been on the receiving end and you've known what you liked and what you didn't like. And you think back to your favorite professor that you've ever had and your least favorite, or maybe not even professor. Maybe you go back to like high school or middle school or whatever. And and you know what qualities you liked and and have been really effective for you. Uh, And you can bring that experience in. Just because you haven't taught before doesn't mean you don't have any experience to pull from. You just have to reframe the way you think about the experience. Totally. One thing that I did when I first started teaching um, is when, Chloe, you're totally right. You have all these experiences as a learner, right? But you've never been in a class as a teacher. So when we took the TA Projects (laughs) Intro to College Teaching course, right, at our first year, Chloe and I took this class together. It was so long ago. It was long (laughs) ago, right? How far we've come. Um, So one of the activities that they have us do, which I think is incredibly valuable, is to observe a course, but from a teacher's perspective, right? So you go into a course from a professor that you either, it doesn't matter if you've had them before or whatnot, you pick a course to observe, and you sit in and you watch them teach. Oh, up until this point, you've only sat into a classroom as someone who is learning, right? You're trying to figure out how you're going to do well on the test or get your participation points or whatnot. And you can sometimes miss what teachers are doing in terms of strategies and how they manage the class. And I think that that's something that everyone who's just starting out teaching could benefit from is observing a course from that different perspective. And you'll notice so many other little things about how they manage the course. So that gave me a boost of confidence to just change my perspective a little bit and say, I can do this from a teacher's perspective. I totally agree. And even then on the flip side, you can go to people that you trust to observe you and give you feedback. Um, and maybe if you're doing this because you're nervous, maybe reach out to people that are like your friends that like are you know are gonna go easy on you. Um, but even then, that's still valuable information. People with you know maybe someone in your graduate program that's a year or two older than you that's taught before, they can come in and um, and even if they don't have a ton of experience, just seeing the other side of it, you can be like, man, I felt like 
it just wasn't engaging. And they could be like, oh, no, that was really great how students were, like, paying attention to this and that. And, and seeing it from the other side of the classroom, they can give you really valuable feedback. Um, next question. Yeah, it looks like um, this is definitely a hard one. A student came to me at the end of the semester wanting extra credit or to resubmit an assignment for a grade boost. What should I do? I feel like every instructor has had this happen, if not every semester. Absolutely. Every semester. Every time. Yeah. There's not an easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, this, this has happened. Every single time I teach a class, at least one student will come to me at the end of class, whether it's after final grades have already been submitted or maybe the week before, saying, I am this close to having whatever grade. I'm three points away for an A. Can I ha- either, sometimes they're just like, can I have the A? <laughs> right. And sometimes they say, oh, I missed this extra credit assignment, or oh, I think you graded too harshly on this paper or whatnot, but I need the A. And I feel like, so one, acknowledging if this happens to you, you're not alone. It's not like you did something wrong as an instructor that your students are disputing grades. This happens, right? Um, and I think that every single student will come to you with some sort of reason why they need a grade. And this just, like, I, I tell them this. Every single student has a reason why they need an A in this class, whether it's they're, they're feeling pressured from their parents or they um, need to get a higher GPA for their sports team or they don't want to lose their scholarship or financial aid or whatnot. And these are all, you know, we want to be sympathetic for these reasons, but the thing is that we just can't do it for one student. And so I always tell them that if I were to give them an extra credit assignment now, that that would be unfair to the rest of the students in the course who didn't have that same opportunity. So I, I often also will point them to, I mean, I tend to have a lot of extra credit in my course throughout the semester anyway, which makes students' grades slightly inflated from what they would be if those opportunities hadn't been there. So sometimes they say, oh, I'm three points away from an A, but that's with four extra credits that you already did. So really, you would have been nowhere near an A, right? Um, So I just point them to, here's the reasons why I can't give you special treatment. But also saying, here's why you earned the grade that you did. Now, Sometimes students will come to you with a really, really valid reason. Um, And I think that's honestly like a conversation for a different day, right? When students will come to you with some extreme case that happened or they have a note from the dean that something happened, um, you know, it's not to say we're unreasonable people, but I think having standards for grading is incredibly important. And if you start to say, sure, you can have the A, then that makes them think that that's okay, and then that makes them do that in the next class that they have, and then they end up graduating with a completely inflated GPA that is going to get them a job that they're not qualified for. I mean, this is like spiraling into ridiculousness, but um, I think grades are not just given, right? They are they are earned based on what you deserve from that course, based on the requirements of that course. So I have super clear grading rubrics to make sure that everyone's being evaluated to consistent standards and um, try not to give anybody special treatment just because they want a certain grade. I think what always drives me crazy is that, as you described, 
chances are they're going to express these feelings and concerns to you at the end of the semester. And so why can't it be, you know, two days into class, hey, I really struggled with this chapter in the book. Can I come visit you during office hours? Which, of course, is our dream situation right. in which we're like, wow, look how, you know, f- you're thinking ahead. Um, and so I think finding any way throughout the semester to encourage students to, if they are concerned, have those conversations earlier rather than later. And I think, you know, making it very obvious that office hours are a good time for that. If you have office hours, maybe if you don't have office hours, just making it really clear that uh, on these days from this time to this time, if you would like a meeting, I would be very willing to meet with you. Uh, And then also just giving them any opportunity you can to give you like some type of feedback in terms of how they think the class is going. Because I think a lot of students don't even notice a problem until they like start getting their tests back uh, and then you know after let's say they have two midterms after the first midterm you know they're a little caught off guard and they're embarrassed and then they just ignore it and then the next midterm comes and they're really freaked out and then they should talk to you at that point but then they find another excuse not to talk to you and then they really have to talk to you once they're starting to get their final grades and right before the final so I think also maybe like specifically after the midterm saying, I know that some of you guys might have struggled with this. Please know that there are opportunities for extra credit and please come talk to me about your situation. So anyway, you can have that conversation earlier in the semester versus at the end, I think will help both them and you. I agree. There's, uh, I'm remembering uh, a tip that actually was in an earlier episode uh, with Darcy. uh, And she said that she has like a, a beginning of class survey that she gives to students. And one of the questions on it is, uh, do you have a particular grade that you want or need in this class? Um, and you should share that. Or maybe it wasn't on the quiz. No, it wasn't on the quiz. It was a in her syllabus. It was like bold and like italicized and like <laughs> you can't miss the statement. Uh, it's like if you want a particular grade, like you should absolutely come see me at the beginning of the semester. And she said she usually gets the A's and the C's. Like those are usually sort of the cutoffs. Like I really need an A or I just need to pass. Um, and then if she knows that and, you know, the midterms come back and a student that's like, yeah, I really want an A is sitting at a C and she can reach out to them and be like, hey, you said you needed an A. We're not on track to do that. We should talk. Or the student that needed a C is like, you know, enough. And you're like, we should talk and so you know which students to reach out to and that does start the conversation at the beginning of the semester and so she says she's found that really helpful um one thing that I found really helpful is that is so I I don't know how prevalent curving is in other fields and um at least in my experience in math it's sort of the norm is to look at the grades at the end of the semester uh and chunk them into letters accordingly right how do you trans how do you translate uh, a number into a letter uh and i found that by not doing that by saying at the beginning of the semester this is the cutoffs i'm gonna have for what an a is and what a b is um does take a lot more planning on my part and a lot more careful like uh calibration of my exams and whatnot but then the students know at every point where they're at in the course. If they're going into the final and they know that they're sitting at an 89 and a 90 is a cutoff and an A, they're going to work really hard for that A and they know that they're coming into that. Um, and it can help facilitate those conversations earlier because they, they know exactly where they're at. Um, the danger with curving can be that if, if they don't know where they're at, 
they don't know to spark that conversation and they don't know how worried they should be. Or maybe they're right on track, but they're like super panicked. And um, so empowering students to, to be informed. Yeah, I think that students, you guys both mentioned that that often doesn't happen till the end of the semester and that they knew at the beginning of the semester what grade they wanted. So I think we can be, we're told, I, they often don't realize, like we're willing to work with them throughout the course of the semester. I really do want you to do well. You know, like I'm not the enemy here. I want you to learn and I want you to do well and I want to do what I can to make that happen. But I don't know that you needed an A until you tell me that, right? So it's just fostering this open communication with your students to say like, hey, we're on the same team here and I want you guys to do well, but you need to talk to me about it in order to make that happen. I agree. Jana, you want to read the last question? It's a big The last question, guys. Okay, all right, here we go. This question is, how do you balance your TA and research duties and your time that you put towards each. Oh my God, yes. Is there a schedule that works for you? That's like, so your routine listeners will know that I asked this question of all of my <sighs> uh, graduate student guests at the end of the episodes because it's such a big question and there's not a one size fits all. Is anyone good at this? No. I think you get better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that the first step to say, like, hey, yeah. if you're struggling with this, you're also not alone. This is really, really, really hard. Yeah. I think one step that I found really helpful is just being conscious of it and being willing to try, you know, adjust my schedule and adjust the way that I track my time and just sort of move around these strategies every semester or sometimes middle semester or whatever time frame. And being aware of what's working and what's not. And I've been able to sort of fine-tune my system. And it's still going to evolve over time because it always does. <laughs> different responsibilities every semester that change out the needs. But just being aware of it is step one. And being willing to try new strategies. I mean, I think one of the hardest things for me is, like, setting. You need to set aside time to do different things. Mm -hmm. And especially, I think, with research. Because I think often... TAing is a, you could argue, like a slightly more like pressing thing, as in every week I need to be seeing my students, I need to be catching up with the grading. So it's very easy to be like, okay, you know, I'm falling a little bit behind on the research, but that's a little bit more of an obscure beast. And so let me just like catch up on the grading and then next week I can do the research. And then you get to the end of the semester and you've done very little in the research department. And so one thing that I have found that's worked really well for me is that um, I'm a bit of a talker and a social butterfly, and I know that if I go into my office space with all of my colleagues in my lab who I adore, I'm not going to be super productive. So I've realized that I want to maintain those relationships, so once or twice a week I will go in for a period of time, but I need to set time apart during the week to like go to a quiet space and actually be able to like focus on my research and if I don't do that I won't do it and so I know for some people their schedule's really crazy but for me I have been able to say like on Wednesdays and Fridays from like 8 a.m till noon that's going to be like my writing time um, and if something like super urgent comes up and I have to cancel that like okay but most weeks I try to stay consistent to dedicating that time because it's really easy to push off I agree 
Totally. I think that you mentioned like how you know yourself. It's like, I know if I'm going to go into my lab, then I'm going to chit chat. So I think that, I guess my advice is understanding what those triggers are for you and understanding what you need. You really need to know what you need. And so for me, I know that I put a lot into my teaching. I will spend hours trying to recreate a lesson plan or design some activity or do this or that. And I can get sucked into that, which will take away from my research time. So I know that. But I also know that I won't show up for class unprepared. I mean, to the extent that, like, I really have control over it. I'm not just going to, like, completely, like, you won't show up for class without having anything planned. Like, I know I won't do that. So if I don't wait, if I wait until the day before class to prep, I know I'm going to get it done in that time period. If I prep a week in advance, I could stretch out that whole week and prep class for a whole week because I'll just keep doing it. So I think that limiting my time in that way to know that literally like at the end of the day, the day will end and the next day will come, like knowing how many hours I can allot to do teaching prep versus research prep helps restrict me in a ways, you know, like I don't trust myself to control my time enough. So I use literal hours of the day to restrict me in terms of um, how much time I can put towards teaching versus research. I think some people say it works really, really well to say, you know, these are my teaching days and these are my research days. That doesn't work as well for me because sometimes I'll say, oh, this is my research day and then I'll get an email from a student and want to respond to it and then it sort of spirals into now my brain's on teaching, right? So kind of knowing what your triggers are and knowing how to prevent yourself from getting sucked into one activity or another is helpful. I totally agree. Something that I found that I'm trying this semester is being aware of what are the things that if it's hanging over my head, it's going to drive me insane. And so like I, if I'm working on, you know, one of the many hats that, that I have that's not research, I'm constantly feeling guilty. Like I should be spending time on research. I should be focusing on my thesis. And so I found that I tried to schedule so that Monday doesn't have any like meetings. I'm not teaching on Mondays. So Monday I focus on research. So then for the rest of the week, I do pepper in research time. But while I'm doing other things, I can say it's okay that I'm doing other things. I, I spent an entire day on research. It's okay. Um, and I don't have to like have that constant guilt about not doing research. Um, and then at the same time, the flip side is also true, right? If you're like, I'm grading all these papers and you're like, ah, I should be spending time on, on research. But then also like, oh, I'm spending time on research, but I have that pile of papers that needs to be graded. And, and knowing like, look, this is going to happen and it's not going to be hanging over my head. And then later I can, I can do the teaching one. In later semesters, it might flip. I might need to do the teaching at the beginning of the week. <laughs> and then that'll hang over. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, it's tough with the changing with like your schedule changing every semester. So you're constantly having to having to adapt to a new schedule, um, and that can be really challenging. I'm I'm somebody who functions really well when I have a schedule in place, and when I don't, that's when things start to slip. So I think setting that up deliberately at the beginning of the semester and saying, "Here's how this day is going to work." Here, even scheduling things in like, "Here's when I'm going to do my laundry." Here's what I'm going to eat. You know, these are things that we forget about. And then anytime there's something that's unplanned, it's sort of it's harder to get back on track. And I think inevitably also I've even talked to a lot of professors who have this strategy and the fact that 
even over the course of the year, they identify times that they're really going to be able to like sit down and write that manuscript or like, really dedicate a large chunk of time to research. And so I think even like this sounds crazy, but when you're planning your year thinking, okay, I know I'm going to have this one week before I'm going to go home for winter break or I'm going to travel for winter break. I'm really going to dedicate that to research and find a way to stay like focused and doing that the whole time. Um, I think you could also think about doing that like during spring break or like at some points over the summer. So finding times where you can really have that concentrated time to it's amazing what you can get done like a week where all you're doing is research. So I think scheduling yourself during the day, during the week, but then also over the course of the year as well. Yeah, but like I totally agree with that. But sometimes that mindset can like sabotage me. If yes. I'm like, when I, I I'll sit down and work on this when I have a week. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and then that never happened. Yeah. Yep. So one of the things that I've started doing this semester is trying to sort of combat that mindset a little bit. So I see there's like times when it can work and times when it can backfire. And when I'm like, I won't work on this until I have a solid week free, never happens. So I've been trying to think about like what are all the mindless little tasks that I do throughout the day that are taking up time, you know, time on social media or scrolling through Instagram, whatever you're doing that's just wasting time. All those little bits of time that add up that could have been research time. So I think that oftentimes I'm like, oh, I can't work on my paper right now because I only have 20 minutes until my next thing. Is there a way that I can restructure my day so that I have bigger chunks of time or so that I'm not just wasting small bits and pieces of time throughout the day. It's hard to do that without then feeling guilty about like anytime you stop and relax and go on a walk or something. I mean, you still have to give yourself that mindless time as well, but not feeling like if you don't have a week of undivided attention that you like that that week's going to be a waste. So feeling like any little bits and pieces of progress are still progress. And that's helped me at, at least a little bit this semester. I totally agree. And I think one thing that I also find myself doing, which you were just describing, is like the subconscious like phone. Just like if I have like a pause in my thinking, for some reason I just immediately like, oh, this is a good opportunity for me to like check my email, <laughs> which is not good because inevitably you're going to have 60 emails and then you end up in this whirl of an hour and a half that you are on your email, like checking in with people on really like relevant things. But it's time that you know, you forgot your train of thought. You were probably about to have a really great thought, but instead you subconsciously looked at your email. So I've even tried implementing the, okay, get into work. I'm going to have a solid like half an hour of email time and like really try not to like maybe check my email at lunch, maybe check it at the end of the day, but trying not to use it as a, I don't know what exactly to do in this moment. So I'm going to like look at my phone, which is very hard for me. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, managing emails is tough. Um, Chloe, you're good at emails, aren't you? You talk about this. Hi. You're good at answering my email. <laughs> you are good at managing email. I, do you do? So one thing that I've started doing is I treat my inbox like a to-do list. So when an email's done, it gets archived or deleted if I legit am positive that I'm never going to need it again. But if I'm like this is done, it's been dealt with, maybe I'll need to reference it someday in the future, maybe, it gets archived. So it's out of the inbox, but I can still find it. Um, 
So mentally that helps when I open my inbox and I don't see like mountains and mountains of emails, only some of which need my attention. Um, I find that I like to have like my coffee task, like I'll wake up in the morning and make my coffee and I'll, I can do something semi-mindless while I'm like drinking my coffee in the morning. So sometimes managing my inbox can be the thing that I'm doing while I'm drinking coffee. So I'll like go through and be like, yep, that's that's a thing I don't need. That I can archive that. This still takes two seconds to reply to. And then the bigger ones I'll sort of leave off until um, have a separate time devoted to like, okay, these are the emails that are going to take me a legit amount of time to put together and respond to. Um, setting expectations is really helpful, especially for teaching. Um, so I have an email policy with my classes that I will reply to students within two business days. Um, now usually, especially if they, if there's a weekend in part of that, usually I'll get to it closer than two business days, but setting that expectation helps the students to know that if they email me on Friday and it's Monday and I haven't replied yet, they know that that's fine. It's coming. Um, and also it gives me the ability to say, it's Saturday and I want to like spend time with my friends or whatever and like, or do research or just have, you know, whatever balance I need to have on that day. And I see the email from the student. I can say, it's okay. I replied to it on Monday. It's fine. They're expecting an email on Monday or Tuesday. It's okay. And again, that, that like guilt hanging over my head is sort of evaporated and it's okay. And I can actually focus on, on that. Um, but yeah, just the decluttering is is the biggest thing for me just mentally not having to like look at in my inbox and just see all the things there only half of which are actually important oh that like the like feeling of having every email in your inbox dealt with yeah i've had that occasionally it's hard it's for so me to bad. get down to zero anymore but i have gotten it down to zero before and there's like a nice little like umbrella icon that microsoft has when you have an empty inbox and it's like your inbox is empty. Congratulations. Hi. Go enjoy your day. Yeah, and I'm like, I will. Thank you very much. And then it's like five seconds. Yeah. And that comes in. But it's a magical five seconds. Yeah. Yes. There you go. Well, I think that's our questions. Um, do you guys have any last things to add that we missed? Or That was fun. I think we should do it again. Keep sending your questions. Yeah. So if you want to get in touch with us, um, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, and actually, if you tweet at us uh, your questions, they might appear in a later episode. And um, so you can tweet at us. Our handle is TA underscore project. Uh, and you can use the hashtag TA question. We also have um, a form on our website. Um, and just generally speaking, you can get to more information about the podcast from the website at uh, tap.ruckers.edu or for the podcast specifically, uh, tap.ruckers.edu slash tapcast.php. Um, we'll put up show notes there uh, with links to any references that we talked about. Um, and as always, if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing with a friend. And until next time, thanks for listening.